Hello, and welcome to another conversation with myself, Mark Vernon, and Rupert Sheldrake. Hi there, Rupert. Hello, Mark. I wanted to talk about gravity today because we were at a meeting a couple of weeks back and you made some very intriguing comments about gravity, which, to be honest, even as someone who did a physics degree at one point, hadn't occurred to me. Um, and just to plunge straight in, one of the remarks you made was about the speed of gravity, that gravity actually travels across the cosmos. And I hadn't thought about that before because I had taken the Einsteinian sense of gravity that it's um, a, a feature of space-time. And so mass warps space-time, a bit like indentations in a great plastic sheet. And that's what causes objects to move around each other and so on as they follow their path in space-time. But you were raising another aspect of this, which is the fact that not only does gravity travel, but it travels much faster than the speed of light, in fact. Um, so where, where, where does that come from? Somebody wrote to me about gravity a few weeks ago, and they gave me a reference to a paper by Tom Van Flanden, which was published in Physics Letters in 1998, and it's called The Speed of Gravity. And Van Flanden's a, a, a physicist, um, and it's a completely fascinating paper. We could put a link to it actually in the in the notes here because it it's not terribly technical. I mean, it, anyone could read it. Um, and what Van Flanden shows is that gravity is actually in practice treated as if it's instantaneous in all calculations of celestial mechanics. You know, if you're calculating the orbits of the planets around the sun, or if you're calculating a moonshot or anything like that, it's treated as instantaneous in, in, in practice. In theory, um, according to Einstein, no causal influence can go faster than the speed of light. But gravity is a causal influence. It causes orbits and things. Um, and he points out that if, if gravity traveled at the speed of light, since it takes eight minutes from light to, for light to get from the sun to us, uh, if you actually assumed that the sun's the gravity was traveling at the same speed, the sun you'd have to put the sun as it moves sort of eight minutes further back. Its position would be different. And if you do that, all calculations go wrong, all orbits fall into chaos, etc. The only way you get the right sums is by treating it as instantaneous. And physicists don't think about it much. They just assume it's a kind of calculating con uh, convenience. And if asked what the speed is, they say, well, it must be the speed of light. As Van Flandern points out, that simply can't be the case. And, um, and yet you can't really assume it's instantaneous because that would violate causality of, uh, you know. The... So he's worked out from astronomical observations, from things on eclipses, from the movements of black holes around each other, you know, from binary star systems. There's a lot of data that's relevant, but he's worked out that um, the speed of, of gravity must be vastly greater than the speed of light. Pierre Laplace, at the beginning of the 19th century, the great physicist who, you know, did so much to found 19th century mechanistic physics, um, uh, assumed that gravity must travel at least 100,000 times the speed of light. Van Flanden calculates it as 20 billion times the speed of light. And um, this is very, very remarkable. You know, our galaxy 
is about 100,000 light years across, which means it takes 100,000 years for a photon of light to go from one side of the galaxy to the other. A gravitational influence would travel across the entire galaxy in less than one second. So it's completely different order. And von, van Flanden then shows that in order to have an influence that moves out, that it's not a static thing, the gravitational field, an influence moving out from something that changes position, then its influence of that changed position should radiate out from it, um, is like some kind of emanation streaming out uh, at this enormously high speed uh, across the whole universe. And everything in the universe with mass is streaming out these gravitational influences. So the entire universe is filled with these influences. Now, that to me is an absolutely fascinating picture. And um, the fact that physicists have to treat it as instantaneous is their approximation to this immense speed of 20 billion times the speed of light. So is this related to speculations about developing a warp drive um, that I, if we wanted to get into interstellar travel, uh, maybe even in interplanetary travel, it would be quite handy, but certainly interstellar travel um, that could be done within a human lifetime, maybe, you know, much, much shorter than that. The idea is that you would have to develop a means of propulsion, which wasn't just about accelerating as close as possible to the speed of light, which would still take quite a long time to travel between stars, but instead would warp space-time itself around the craft and then the idea would be that the craft would travel at these phenomenally much faster speeds. So might even be able to traverse the Milky Way in a second. It's, it's related to the same notion, is it? Well, he doesn't discuss space warps or, or, or science fiction-y type things in, in his paper. Um, he just sticks to you know, regular astronomy and cosmology. Um, but I think it made me, what it did was sort of made me go back to thinking about Newton's approach because Newtonian mechanics is taken as the very hallmark of mechanistic science. It's like the kind of gold standard of mechanistic science. And yet Newtonian physics, the centerpiece of it all is Newton's theory of gravity, um, which is his, you know, his greatest discovery really. The, um, um, and Newton thought that gravity was uh, instantaneous. Um, and he also thought that the, uh, what it showed was that everything in the universe was related to everything else. And, you know, Newtonian mechanics was often dismissed as being sort of crudely reductionistic and stuff. But actually, it's a completely holistic vision. What Newton is saying is that every particle of matter in the universe attracts every other particle of matter in the universe. Everything is interrelated, instantaneously interrelated, according to Newton. And he couldn't explain gravitational force itself. He didn't think that gravitational force could come from matter. Uh, because he didn't think matter, brute matter, would have a capacity to act over the whole universe. He thought of it as localized. So in order to explain it, he didn't know how to explain it. He, he made that famous statement, hypotheses non-fingo, I feign no hypotheses, uh, saying he wasn't pretending to explain it, he just had a mathematical law that enabled you to calculate, um, the, it, but it didn't tell you what it was. Um, 
and in later in his life he he speculated that actually the cause of gravity was direct uh, the direct cause of the will of god and that absolute space everything was in absolute space for newton absolute space was the sense organ of god that absolute space meant that god knew where everything was um, and could feel everything that happened because space was god's sense organ and everything's in space so that was newton's way of thinking of it um but the he had a rival in in everything throughout his life uh, in the form of leibniz you know the the german philosopher mm -hmm. also invented the the differential calculus and you know newton and leibniz had endless arguments about almost everything and leibniz's view was that every particle of matter elf every unit of organization or monad as he called it um reflects consciously reflects the entire universe from its own point of view so leibniz put consciousness in all matter um and said that in newton's case every bit of matter was related to every other bit of matter in an unconscious way from the matter's point of view but consciously through the mind of god what leibniz did was put consciousness in each particle of matter with no absolute space everything now emerged from the relations it was a relativistic theory. Everything emerged from the interrelations of everything in the universe, which were each one had mirrored the universe from its own point of view. So every particle was in a different place from everything else, therefore saw it from a different point of view. So that was a kind of panpsychist view of interconnectedness. And this, so the, these very interesting ways of thinking go right back to the 17th century when the idea of gravity first came up. And actually, it's just as mysterious today. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about this, actually, in relation to the notion of love, because it strikes me that when Dante, for example, you know, about whom I've written, concludes the Divine Comedy, he ends it with this famous vision in which he feels himself to be spinning, he says, like a perfect wheel with the love that moves the sun and the other stars. So... That feels a bit Leibnizian, actually, in, at least in this moment, that within himself, he knows himself to be part of a reflection of or an echo or refraction of the love that is the dynamism that's moving everything else in the cosmos. And it's been making me think about how um, we might reimagine love, not just as a personal feeling, but as a sort of an objective fact. And the way that love's talked about of course as a as a love is talked about as a force of attraction reaching across distance and maybe more or less uh, instantaneously as well whether there are links and it's not just i think a linguistic possibility because i also know that um newton he was very influenced um by the writings of ficino um the um renaissance neoplatonist who was translating into Latin the works of Plato at the time. And the esoteric side of Newton was very fascinated by the ancient Greek notion of the daemons, um, which are these go-between entities. And in particular, Ficino wrote about um, Eros, um, that was the, the sort of chief demon of attraction, if you like. And I think this vision, I think this has been established by scholars now, that historians of science, that this vision of a cosmos filled with the influence of eros of love um very much inspired newton's sense that 
that could be a cosmos filled with the influence of gravity, um, which he then was able to mathematize and so on. Um, but that, in a way, you're saying perhaps that was sort of his private uh, ruminations inspired by his more esoteric interests that later in life he he talked about in terms of the will of God and um, the notion that there's a kind of field of God's will um, perhaps isn't you know so much different from the old Dantean notion that love is that which fills all things and brings them you know the, the spirited notion of their dynamism spinning with 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 the love that moves the sun and the other stars um, it's it's very striking that you know God's Dante's vision of God is not static. It is this very dynamic vision, in fact. I suppose that the the love, the idea of gravity as love, one thing that perhaps fits that is the fact that gravity is essentially unitive. What it does is ties all things together, um, um, and the universe uh, has been expanding since the Big Bang, according to modern cosmology, um, because there's a force pushing it apart, which is now called dark energy. Um, but if the dark energy wasn't doing that, or if there wasn't enough dark energy, uh, the universe would slow down in its expansion because of gravitational pull, and then everything would contract. And, you know, all the equations show that it would be like the opposite of the Big Bang, the Big Crunch. Everything would collapse into an ultimate black hole. Um, the, the gravity by itself would bring everything together. It brings things together. It doesn't separate things. It always brings them together. Um, and what's more, um, and what's, I think, find really puzzling, and I've, I've just been reading about Faraday and his ideas on force. Um, he was utterly puzzled by gravity because you can't unify it with electromagnetism or other forces. All grand unified theories have tried to do it and failed. Einstein failed. And even today, quantum theory and relativity theory, which relativity is about gravity and quantum theory about the microscopic organization of matter, the two theories are incompatible and they're the two most fundamental theories in physics. They haven't been unified. People are always trying. But the, the, the thing about gravitational force is that it's not diminished by being used. That, say, a meteor comes through, is going through the solar system, it's sort of traveling through free space, and then it's brought within the gravitational field of the Earth, and then it comes down and crashes into the Earth. There's a huge amount of energy in the meteor, kinetic energy. When it hits the Earth, it can create a big crater. Um, you know, and throw up lots of dust and smoke and stuff. Um, it's, it, there's a huge amount of energy involved. But the Earth's gravitational field loses no energy at all in causing that to happen. In fact, it gains gravitational mass because the meteor adds to the mass of the Earth, which now has a stronger gravitational pull. So, in a sense, the Earth, uh, the Earth is, uh, the, the gravitational field of the Earth is causing things to happen through forces which act at a distance um, but uh, or through the force field of gravitation but it's not losing anything by doing it so here we've got something which loses nothing by bringing things together and its whole tendency is to bring things together um, um, and if the dark energy wasn't pushing them apart the whole universe would in fact collapse into one blob uh, which would then contract as far as it conceivably could under the force of its own gravity.
So something that brings everything together and holds the entire universe together um, prevents anything escaping from this togetherness of everything is indeed like a kind of love principle writ large at the most cosmic possible level. It's very, very fascinating. Um, look, this is another, a bit of a tangent perhaps, but um, when you talk about that gravity in that way, um, it makes me think of the old Aristotelian notion of God as the unmoved mover. And the point for Aristotle was that um, God um, is the sort of omnipresent attractor, if you like, um, which everything that's in the cosmos is seeded to desire and want. And the many different things in their different modes of existence are each in their particular way, ultimately, as a kind of final cause, as Aristotle put it, seeking, if one can use that metaphorically, seeking to fulfill that instinct, almost that impulse or um, habit um, that um, has been put into them by being part of this whole, um, wanting to find the fulfillment um, that the whole might bring. And um, I think this is this is very fascinating because um, I think what one of the things that happens when uh, when, when when gravity was born um, is actually uh, remembers in the word itself um, that the word gravity, of course, had existed before. Newton um, and before other figures like Galileo were working on it, um, but it meant the tendency um, to have weight um, in the sense of, uh, you know, particularly the two elements of water and earth were felt to be particularly open to gravity, whereas the elements of fire and air were thought to be more open to the notion of levity. Um, and so levity was the tendency to move up, gravity was the tendency to move down. And these were just different aspects um, of this one desire to move towards the divine, to seek fulfillment. Um, but both aspects were felt to be needed. Um, and I think one of the things that sort of disturbed people um, when gravity was taking on its more modern sense and becoming conceived of as, well, a force in nature, even if that force was a mystery at the same time, for the reasons you were saying, and was because it was felt that the two aspects were become se becoming separated. So, for example, when um, Galileo, for example, um, designed a freestanding clock where you could see the complete mechanism of the clock, the pendulum, which, of course, is a way of drawing on the gravitational energy to turn the cogs of the clock. But they could see that it was only drawing on gravity and there was no role for levity. Um, in that mechanism. And so it was, clocks were sometimes seen as almost diabolical machines. And because they were sort of separating out one aspect of the divine econ economy um, for a particular use um, and excluding another aspect, um, it, it's, it's not quite the same set of um, forces, but the same, I think, thing disturbed people about windmills. Um, because when windmills started to become much more a common feature, say, of the European landscape at the, at the early period in, in the Renaissance, um, the beginnings of mercantilism. Um, and windmills were seen as extracting one part of the, the pneumatic whole 
um, you know, we've talked about this before, but the word pneuma um, in the Greek um, means wind, breath and spirit. Um, and so when Plato talks about um, that side of life, he can talk about how the pneuma is taken in, becomes our pneuma breath. And then that is part of our pneuma spirit. There's a kind of holistic sense of movement there again. Um, but what a windmill did was just extract the wind and, as it were, not be bothered about the breath and the spirit. And they were very practically um, useful, but nonetheless sort of disturbing as well, as if they were cutting up the cosmos, cutting up reality, and in particular dropping um, the, the part that might be seen as most closely relating to God. Um, and, and, and purpose is linked here, too, because, you know, in Aristotle's physics, um, gravity and levity are seen not just as abstract forces, but as tendencies, directions of travel for um, entities that live in the cosmos, that are in the universe. Um, so they give sort of shape as well as having these practical uses. Um, now, look, that's a bit of a, a spin off in a number of different directions, but um, is that partly why this understanding of gravity interests you? Because it does seem to link to more purposeful or meaningful ways of imagining physics and the cosmos, therefore. Well, yes. I mean, I think gravity acts as a final cause. In other words, I think it's attracting from the future. Um, you know, and certainly when, when you, the attraction, it works by attraction. And attraction means being pulled towards a future state. So if I hold something up and I let it go and it falls down, being pulled towards its future on the floor, as it were. Um, so that's one thing that it has. A, and if the attractor of universal gravity uh, were got its way, as I say, it would result in the entire universe being pulled together uh, a bit opposite the Big Bang. And the principle of levity in modern cosmology is really dark energy because the Big Bang happens because things are f thrown apart. There's an energy pushing them apart. And according to modern observations that the universe expansion, uh, the universe's expansion is accelerating rather than decelerating, means that they've had to invent ever increasing amounts of dark energy um, to explain the expansion of the universe. Now, so you have these two opposites that if gravity took over, if that was the end of everything, everything would collapse into a black hole and end up in total darkness. And if levity or dark energy is dominant, the universe expands more and more at an accelerating rate. And Roger Penrose has pointed out that if that happened, there'd come a point where matter itself evaporated into light. And so you'd end up with universal light. Um, you know, infinitely extended or almost infinitely extended. So these two principles, we still have them, levity and, and gravity, in, in our cosmology, and they're in a kind of balance with each other. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, 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 there is a sense of these older ideas returning in relation to new physics. And, uh, you know, that these are tremendous new discoveries um, and uh, speculations based upon modern physics. But it is interesting how those speculations bring back older ideas. Um, another um, source on this that I was just recently reading was the um, philosopher who's a great advocate of panpsychism here in the UK, Philip Goff. 
he's just got a book out called Why the Purpose of the Universe. And um, in that, he talks about how um, if this panpsychist idea is part and parcel of what has heretofore been called the material world, um, then intentionality goes all the way down quite as much as the dynamics of force go all the way down. Um, and he is quite prepared to speculate that the universe, therefore, can be seen as having a purpose as a whole, which we play a part in. But in a sense, nothing is forgotten. Um, and so in particular, he feels this is a way of trying to understand the suffering of life, um, that it's all part of a great project um, of realization um, that the universe learns from our experience everything is sort of absorbed and taken in and when i although he doesn't use the word love um in the book and um, i spoke to him um as part of this research i was doing and he he did say yeah you know um he feels that the universe um is absorbed with the one task of bringing about the best possible states for everything that is within it and whilst he doesn't think that the universe itself is conscious in the in a metaconscious kind of way um you know knowing what it's doing as it were it's much more instinctual for him nonetheless he felt that um this could be called a supreme act of love because in a way the universe can be imagined as giving <coughs> itself to these best possible states for everything that is within it um now you know this is he he's not um uh religious in any traditional sense um but i think his reflections upon the physics you know through his deep knowledge of all that um with philosophical um spectacles on as well um it's it's very fascinating that it's leading him to bring back um these kind of notions um and of course he's working very hard to bring them into the mainstream and not just have them as fringe interests or even as taboo The main, the old tradition, of course, is of the world soul, and in a sense, gravity takes on the role of the world soul. Um, you know, Plato and, uh, and many other, and Plotinus and other philosophers thought that the whole, the whole universe has a soul, or is it within a soul? It's in, and the soul held everything together. Well, that's what the gravitational field does. So, I think this ties in with Goff, and I mean, there's a long tradition behind what he's saying, um, but. I myself, one of the things I've got is perhaps this is too big a topic to introduce, uh, or at least to discuss at length, because we're near, our time's nearly up. But um, it, looking at the, uh, since I think the foundational basis of everything is Trinitarian, and, and, and the Holy Trinity is the Christian version of this, if, if one says, well, the, the one aspect of the Holy Trinity, God the Father, is the ground of being, is the is being pure being itself, you know, the, the, the conscious being. Well, what would be the reflection in the universe of, of God the Father? Well, I suppose gravity and matter, because matter is being, located being, and it's all interrelated, as we've been uh, saying. I mean, so this would be like God the Father is the ground of everything. It's the gravitational field, according to Einstein, isn't in space-time, it is space-time. It's the actual container of everything that happens. And then, if you take electromagnetism, 
which are the other great forces in, in nature apart from the nuclear forces but electricity and magnetism and their relationship um, are very similar to um, the principle of the the spirit and the logos the logos in the holy trinity is the principle of form structure order pattern relationship um, and magnetic fields are like that they all have form they're extended in space they interact um, that you know they have attractive and repellent repulsive properties because of the polarity and stuff so there's an inherent polarity they're spatial magnetic fields whereas electricity is although there can be static electricity is mostly about flow and uh, you have huge electric currents flowing through the arms of galaxies magnetic field lines a million light years long and so on vast amounts of electricity in the whole universe and electricity is like the spirit principle it's about flow and uh, magnetism is like the logos principle it's about form and so in these three major forces of nature you know the being itself where energy is confined through circulating rotating into matter as david bohm says matter is frozen light the energy of light uh, as soon as sort of energy turns around on itself goes in in, in an orbit or like electronic orbits so it's confined um, <clears throat> and becomes repetitive with repetitive cycles then um, you, you've got matter located matter and matter then has all this gravitational connection with everything else um, and then light is that free-flowing principle of energy and spirit and um, electromagnetic radiation um, filling the entire universe so we have in in the gravitational aspect of matter a reflection of God the Father and in electric currents and electric flow and light itself a reflection of the Holy Spirit and in magnetic fields and formative fields in general a reflection of the the logos so anyway that's one of the ways I've been thinking about it yeah no look I I, I like that notion because um, I feel that the impulse behind it is to sort of go with the flow um, of the the modern physics, the modern understanding, but sort of push it um, to see what lies within it and around it and underneath it. Um, you know, rather than a religious response, which might be to feel defensive against the science or even rejecting it. Mm -hmm. um, because, you know, at the end of the day, physics is a form of contemplation on the nature of reality. Um, so why wouldn't these patterns reappear? Um, and for all that physics is mostly mathematics, and um, that's a, a very sort of niche way of engaging with reality, perhaps these deeper patterns are the way that they can make sense to us too. Um, and so, you know, can be in a kind of dialogue with the older traditions, um, revealing um, the pattern of things. So yeah, that, that's that's actually a very helpful uh, notion, I think. Hey, look. Well, we should take it up perhaps in a future conversation, and because I think the relation of electromagnetism to consciousness is, I think, something that's a, a very deep and important. Um, but we haven't time to discuss it now. So I think. But in, what I conclude from all this really is that some of the most obvious things we know about, like gravity, that we we live within it all the time, we take it completely for granted, uh, are actually, the more you think about it, profoundly mysterious. Um, and and 
reading Van Flanden's paper on the speed of gravity, you realise just how mysterious this is and how little even physicists think about these problems because they're just too mysterious, like koans, you know, they're just too mysterious. So we just treat it in a kind of banal way. Um, here's an equation, just calculate. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, it's worth remembering because, you know, we feel gravity all day, every day too. And so being able to get some sense of being immersed in the mystery of that um, yeah. is, is very helpful. It's part of the re-enchantment of life. So look, thanks very much indeed. Mm, thank you, Mark.